Well, um, tonight we're gonna, we have a number of questions uh, relating to the parenting uh, series. And um, let's start with a word of prayer and we'll just get right into handling those questions. Father God, we just thank you for our opportunity to be together here tonight. We pray that your Holy Spirit would not only be with us, but also with the Chicago Cubs. And um, we pray your blessing upon uh, our conversation on these issues, Lord, because we know that they matter. And we know that not only for those who are here, but those who will access it on the web, Lord, as well. We ask that you'd be magnified, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So anyway, James, you have questions for me tonight. I do. These are actually all from me. They're all from you. <laughs> uh, no, as you said, we had, we had a lot of great questions come through, so I'm, I'm excited to, to hear what you have to say and expound on these things. So the first one we have is, is please explain the roles of step-parents in blended families. Wow. Um, that's a book. <laughs> that's several books. Um, let, me, let me begin, I, I guess, by saying... Uh, what are, what are the initial, the essential challenges of being a step-parent? And uh, it begins with the fact that it's not the way that God intended for families to be. Uh, families are intended to be uh, led by biological parents. And one of the things that is always surprising to people is how powerful the, blend, the bond is between a child and their biological parent. So in many cases, I mean, there are some cases where a child is left as an orphan because a mother or a father dies, and uh, that can be a very positive or negative experience in a child's life based upon whether or not they have the experience of a positive or negative surrogate parent. And I think that the concept also extends to uh, kids who maybe uh, have a stepfather or stepmother after a divorce takes place, although it's much more complicated. Because we understand, I mean, it seems very reasonable that if a parent dies, that's a tragedy in the child's life and can cause all sorts of trauma, but it's something that is not necessarily uh, pointing back at the child as their responsibility. What's difficult in divorce situations is children, especially as they get into uh, the later uh, uh, years, increasingly feel like the divorce in some way was their responsibility. And they begin to question from this perspective. They wonder, why did my mother or my father not love me enough to stay my mom and my dad on a full-time basis? And that's not a logical reasoning, but it's, it's a child's reasoning because they, even when they have a parent who may not be the most attentive or caring or even present parent, they feel that absence in their life. And we don't quite understand it, but there seems to be something that's almost like spiritual in that sense. I've had friends who uh, were orphans and, and, or were adopted out as small children, and they couldn't kind of let go of the fact that there was a mom or a dad out there or both that they didn't know. And so they spent a lot of time and energy trying to trace down their biological parents. So there's nobody that impacts a child more uh, significantly than the biological parent. So when you talk about a, a step-parent home, uh, you have some really, really significant uh, challenges, especially if the kids are older. Because even in a divorce situation, the older a child is when the parents get divorced, uh, the more traumatic it is for them. 
So that if, you know, I mean, if somebody's going to get divorced, and God forbid that anybody would get divorced, but they will, it's, it's better if it happens when the children are very small uh, than it is when they hit five, six, seven. Even I've known individuals who are in their 20s uh, who in their parent or 30s when their parents divorced go through significant emotional trauma. Uh, as a friend of mine put it, and I, in fact, I, I talk about it in my marriage book, they, he talks about how that at 19 when his parents divorced, he, was, he went through a, a huge crisis because he asked the question, if they lied to me about their love for each other, what else do they teach me that's not true? And so he went from, actually this is Dan McMahon who was up here a few weeks ago uh, with me when we did the Q&A with he and Janie. And, and, and he's, here Dan was a, a, a cadet at the Air Force Academy, you know, on this fast track for a great career in the, in the military or something else. And he just completely flunked out. You can't quit the Air Force Academy, you've got to get thrown out. So he did everything he could to get thrown out and then spent the next two years really just kind of trying to pull his life together because it was such a traumatic event. So I think it's, it's, it's one of those things we need to understand that uh, the step-parent, child, step-parent relationship isn't a fix necessarily for all the problems. Now let me tell you what step-parenting does fix. If you're a single mom and you have a, a husband who will love you and your kids and support you, it's a tremendous fix financially. Because the one common denominator in most po- impoverished homes or is, is a single-parent home. It's, it's, it's the one single most uh, generalized predictor of someone who's going to be financially poor if they are a single parent. And so, and since the vast majority are women, we find it keeps a great number of women in poverty. So if you have someone who is going to step in and take that responsibility and lift the poverty dimension of your family, that's a wonderful thing. And I say that because I think sometimes we, we kind of look down on it. If we're talking to a single mom who's struggling to care for kids and feed them and work and keep the wolf from the door, and it's kind of like, well, are you marrying this person just for money? There was a time in our history where nobody would have thought twice and they would have said, of course I am. So I, I, I wouldn't be so quick to judge that. And I think that's a critical example. My only counsel to many women in that case is that, number one, if you're a Christian, he needs to be a Christian. Number two, uh, you make sure that he's not insane. Uh, and, and if those two go by, make sure that he's a guy who actually likes to work and has a job because you don't want to marry a guy, uh, someone I knew, who as soon as they got married, he quit. <laughs> and uh, felt like she could support his family while he pursues his own agendas. So it's, it's, it's a risky proposition marriage is challenging remarriage is doubly challenging but more importantly that the idea of going into a blended family is not something that is easy by anybody's measurement you have huge issues and oftentimes one of the things that comes up is conflict over how to discipline the kids because blended families you have oftentimes the wife has been in a position for a period of time where she has had to be both parents, the defender and the protector, as well as the provider and the lover of their kids. And suddenly this man comes on the scene and he comes from a different idea. They don't have an opportunity to really work through the dynamics of how are we going to raise our kids? Which is really kind of the first things that you, you want to deal with when you have people in that situation who want to remarry. The first question I would ask is, how are you going to address the issue of discipline with the children that are in the home? 
because you find, especially if it's a man who hasn't had children, it can be doubly difficult. And so most of the counseling I have done over the years with blended families has been over the issue of how he is treating the kids and how she expects the kids. And they're my kids, they're not your kids. Don't try to spank my kid. Don't try to discipline my kid. And, they, and the bottom line is they're not one. They're divided over this issue. And it becomes one of these almost militant things where a woman can feel like, it's my job first and foremost to protect my kids. The guy then feels like, well, then you don't love me and you're not allowing me to be the head of my own home. And it can be, it can be a very, very difficult situation. So I think that my, big, my greatest advice to people who have blended families is that they get into a uh, first uh, premarital counseling. Secondly, they get continuing counseling with people who understand the dynamics, and they find a support group that, that no, helps them to talk with other couples who are building blended families. I think it can work beautifully. I've seen a cases where it's really, really a match made in heaven, but, but it's, uh, it happens because you make sense of it. So if you're a single parent or you're a, a single person who's thinking about marrying and suddenly you meet this wonderful woman who has kids and you're, you think this can be the greatest thing, I, I do not want to discourage you from that. I want to encourage that because I think kids need a father even if it's a surrogate father. But there's a lot of challenges in that, and the first and foremost, it's the issue of how are you going to address the issue of the raising and the disciplining and the training of the kids. Um, add to that, I would simply say that uh, there's a great book, not specifically on this topic, but it's called Faith of the Fatherless. It's written by a psychologist, a Christian psychologist. Uh, um, I think his name was Peter Vick. My last name was Vick. But... Uh, he did a study on why people became atheists because he had been atheist before he was a believer. And he said there's not a, it's not a rational or reasonable position. It's probably the most indefensible position to hold theologically of any that you could choose. Uh, so why would somebody choose and sometimes so vehemently to be an atheist? And he found out from his study that it was father issues that he said when there was a loss of a father or there was abuse by a father, oftentimes the expression of the anger towards the father is, is expressed towards God the Father. And that's what the real motivation behind their atheism is. But he also gave a whole series of case studies on people who had, uh, had a surrogate father who came into their life and was a positive influence on their life. And uh, it became, many of them, became some of the most successful and productive people in our world. So uh, it's not an altogether a bad thing, but it's not something that should be entered into lightly. Uh, it's, it's, it brings, to a marriage, it brings a great many complications and difficulties. So I probably said enough about that, right? I'm just listening. Um, well, I've got a meter here, and it's running. Right? <laughs> You got a clock for each question. Well, I get paid by the word, so I just, you know, that's what I do. Well, I'd say you're doing pretty good then. Um, <laughs> I can retire. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you touched on this, but just to kind of, to kind of go back to that. So you would say that the biggest challenge in blended families is, is that issue of discipline? Yep. With the kids, yeah. The kids are going to be the, 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 real, the real difficulty because think about it. You, you're not just adding a wife. You're adding a wife 
times one, times two, times three. There's really kind of, you're adding exponential dynamics into the, because more kids, every kid is unique, as we talked about attack last time, that every child is, is their unique personality. And there's a, and depending on how old the kids are, the learning curve for the parent entering into the relationship is huge. So, I mean, it's, I don't want to be uh, too discouraging, but at the same time, I think there's a desperate need for, for, uh, for a reality check in terms of what's really going to be the demands. Yeah, as I hear you say that, I think there's definitely a call for us to, to pray for the blended families in our church, knowing that the, the challenge that they, they have in front of them, the things that they face. Um, well, now that we started off with something light, um, <laughs> let's, go to, let's go to this one. I joke with my, my, my wife because I, like, I think a lot of these questions, it's like, well, did a staff member write this one, or, or how, did, how did this come up with? But I think probably a lot of people in this room, or a lot of people, as you said, who will watch this online can relate to this question. But the question is, I struggle with feeling resentful towards my husband when he spends time doing what he wants, things like working out, watching TV, spending time on his phone, rather than helping me out with the kids or household tasks. I also worry that our kids are going to remember him spending time doing those things rather than spending time with them. Any suggestions? <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, first of all, I would say this is a real common, real common concern. I mean, this comes up a lot. Uh, I, I think in this room, my wife is probably the only one who's never had to struggle with that issue. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and, and there's, again, this is a, uh, there literally are books written on these kind of topics. But I think that uh, the question is, how do we approach it? Because I, I don't know the exact situation, so I'll, I'm obviously doing some generalizing and speculating. But I think the first thing we have to understand is that um, this is, as I said, an extremely common problem, so you're not alone in feeling that way. In fact, one of the hardest things I think for men to learn is that they, uh, they go into marriage kind of feeling like once they've said, I... I do, that they've fulfilled their responsibilities. And there are very few men I know who get married and really have a full sense of what their obligations and responsibilities are. And they are dependent upon their mothers teaching them. And I, th I think that, that, that that's part, part of the problem, that rarely does a mom explain to a son, this is what your wife is going to expect from you, and this is what you need to be. In fact, our experience with our moms is they treat us like we're little kings in their house. We take, they take care of them. I look back, and I think when my parents, you know, I was, I was out of control, and they sent me to boarding school because I was so well-behaved. And I think, you know, it's crazy because my mom went down and opened up a, you know, this is before credit cards. She went and opened up a revolving account at, a, at the nicest clothing store in town so that I would always be able to buy whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. She sent me money. She did. I mean, it was crazy. Even when I was in college, my mom would br drive up to Berkeley and bring me groceries every two weeks, open a checking account and, you know, put money in it and said, now, just be careful not to overspend because if you're going to run out of money, let me know. I'll just deposit more. And I, my wife thought, she, was, she thought, this is insane. You're the biggest spoiled brat on the planet. And I said, of course I am. Look at me. I mean, I deserve this. this is, uh, so we're lay, raised like little princes many times by our, by our moms. And then suddenly we marry a, a woman. And, you know, you're sitting there casual saying, hey, get me a Coke. And she turns around and says, are something wrong with your legs? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> why don't you get me a Coke? And you're suddenly bursting into this new reality. So... Part of the dynamic is that most men from our culture are not prepared to enter into a partnership 
with their wives. They're not prepared to care with, to help out. And I know that when we started having kids, uh, it came to a point where my wife was literally so desperate and so exhausted that if I didn't begin to step up, uh, she probably wasn't going to survive. And then I was going to be a single parent. You know, so it was like, uh, it was a real stiff learning curve for me. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a smart guy. I learned quickly. And so I got through that learning curve in the next, like, 25, 30 years. But it's a real stiff learning curve nonetheless. But uh, you have to understand that oftentimes this is not maliciousness. This is just a lack of training and information. So how do you overcome that? Well, uh, you always begin with prayer. In fact, I, I love what, what uh, Paul said in Galatians 6.1. He says, if you see your brother overtaken in a fault. And this is a fault for us guys. I mean, we, we have to come to recognition ourselves. Oftentimes, my wife recognizes these things far before me because God speaks through the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks most, most clearly through my wife. And so... Uh, you have to begin to realize that, that this is part of your ministry to your husband is to raise his awareness, open his eyes to things that he doesn't recognize. And is he being selfish? Yes. The danger is, now this is what we all struggle with, when somebody is treating us badly because of selfishness, doesn't it tempt us to become selfish on the opposite side? Our reaction is our own kind of selfishness. And so the reaction oftentimes of the wife is to begin to attack the husband because he's such a, a lazy bum and blah, 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 blah. And, and factually, she may be absolutely correct. But functionally, it says in Proverbs 14.1, a wise woman builds her house, a foolish woman tears it down. So you don't want your response to his behavior to be one that tears the house down, and then you're basically living homeless. So what could be the response? Well, if I see them overtaking the fault, he said, go to them in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself. In other words, begin by looking at your own heart. And that's where I say that the first step of, of correcting any bad behavior is to ask God to open my eyes to my own bad behavior. In other words, why does this bother me? And, and, and light, many times you'll find that God will reveal something about your own self that you weren't even aware of, some way that you may be behaving and uh, with, with people, it's, it's different across the board. Some women will suffer for a very long time because they have a martyr complex until one day they just lose it and blow up. And I've, I've had men come to me and say, I'm, we had this perfect marriage. And then one day my wife said, I've had it, I'm gone. And she took the car and left and hasn't come back yet. And he says, I don't even know what happened. Well, I can only say to him that there was something going on for a long time. But for whatever reasons, she didn't feel like she could say anything until she couldn't handle it. Don't be that woman, nor be the woman who is waiting for him at the front door when he comes home from work and just launches. I'm kind of like, here, it's your turn. <laughs> and the, and, and, and that's, that's counterproductive as well, because he hasn't had a chance to catch up with what's going on. So you go to him. First of all, you ask God, give me the right heart. And then you sit down and say, we need to talk. And, you know, turn the television off. What, you know, what my wife would do, she'd put the kids to bed and then she'd come in, she'd turn the television off, and she'd say, sit down, I want to say something to you. And we'd sit there, and I learned very quickly, this is not going to be good. I, first, I thought it was going to be, you're so wonderful, I just want to have you all to myself. <laughs> it didn't come out that way. So anyway, uh, but it was, a, it was at this point, suddenly, we're having the real conversation. I love you, I value you, our relationship is the most important thing, but let me lay out some very basic practical facts. 
I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I, I need your help. I need your help. And here's how you can help me. You could help me by cleaning the kitchen after dinner. You could help me on the weekend coming down and clean, helping me clean the house. One of my, when my wife, my, what, yeah, what my wife and I discovered is we could clean the house in half the time if both of us did it together. <laughs> I'm good with math too. So, you know, it, it, it became interesting because we, we found that that sharing of the responsibilities was actually began to build a different level of relationship that I actually, you know, began to feel good. And I, my wife began to give me really positive feedback for my involvement in helping out with those kind of things. And we, even the kids were small, I would do those things where, honey, you have one night a week, you can go get together with your girlfriends, you guys go have fun, I'll stay home and watch the kids. It was good for me, it was hard on the kids, but it was good for my wife. <laughs> and you know, it just, it's those kinds of things because I think men oftentimes say, well, I don't want my wife out with her girlfriends. Well, depending on who her girlfriends are, <laughs> my, my wife's girlfriends were more likely to have a Bible study than anything else. But the bottom line is she desperately needed time with other women just to be able to recharge her batteries, to kind of rediscover her femininity, <laughs> what it's like to, because she's told me one time, she said, do you realize I've been changing diapers every day for five years? That's what happens when you have three kids in a row, just like that. You know, because, but I, you know, it kind of put it in perspective for me. I thought, oh my gosh, I complain whenever I have to do it once in a while. And you do it every day for five years. That's amazing. You don't get a Sabbath. <laughs> and so, uh, it, but it, it, it really comes from the beginning with a very simply sharing the simple realities. It's different today than it was 20, 30, 50 years ago. You know, and that's the problem that many men have is they looked at their parents' family and the sisters and brothers and, you know, and aunts and uncles and, and parents and cousins pretty much all lived in the same geographical region. It was easy to find a babysitter because you make agreements with other family members. Grandma and grandpa were always willing to come over because they had to walk down the street. Now... We live very isolated. You know, it's a, like my daughter calls up yesterday. She's in the hospital uh, in, 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 in the emergency room, and she's got two kids at home, and that's it. And she's calling me up and calling my wife up. I'm in Montana where there is no phone service or Internet. And she's calling my wife saying, help. You know, it's not easy. It's not like you can just jump in the car and just run across the street. So we live in that kind of a world today where uh, there isn't a lot of help readily available. And most people, the vast majority of us can't afford to hire a nanny. So what do you do? Well, part of that can be the church and can, can be build some community. There, needs to, there may be a chance that couples can work together and sharing. Uh, you know, we have our date night. You have your date night. You can send your kids to our house. We'll send, them, we'll send ours to yours. And there's all sorts of creative ways to, to go about addressing that, that kind of an issue. But it really, it does depend more than it ever has depended on husbands beginning to share part of the work. And it's important for us not to think that that's unbiblical, uh, because its division of labor has been, is, exists all over the world, and somehow we get the idea that this is man's work and this is woman's work. Um, and I'm just simply saying, if you have that divided and it's working well for you, God bless you. I don't want to mess with that. But I just find increasingly it's not working for couples more and more. Uh, but again, to s try to s give the simpler answer, uh, more concise, simply, 
Have that conversation, but do it after prayer. Do it with, after you've gotten your heart right. It may take you a week of praying over it just to get where you're not angry or whatever the issue is. And get your heart in that right place that your husband is not your enemy and he, he probably is just super ignorant of how hard it is. And um, uh, you'll get there. Like I say, it only took me and my wife about 30 or 40 years. We worked it out. I, uh, I moved things around a little bit. I thought this one led well into it. And you may have already answered it, because um, this may be one of the same question. But this was another a unique question that came in. and said, how can I encourage my husband to step up into the role of a spiritual leader in our family? Um, this is probably not going to make a lot of sense to you right off the bat. You can get him to step up by stepping back. Um, I remember when I was on staff at Coast Mesa, I was talking to Pastor Romaine, and we were talking about this dynamic because we had a lot of women coming in complaining that their husbands wouldn't step up as to be the leaders in the home, not just spiritually, they just wouldn't step up. And what you have to understand the way men are wired, that if women step up, men by instinct step down. Uh, Sandy Adams put it really well. He says, since little boys, we have been trained to let the women go first and to be accommodating. He told a great little story. He said, when I was 10 years old, this little girl shows up in my house and tells my mom that I hit her. And so he said, she made me stand at the door and told the girl, you hit him as hard as you want and he's not going to do anything. And he says, I had to stand there while this eight-year-old smacked me across the face. And he says, I learned really quickly that if a woman asserts herself, you back off. This creates the kind of dynamic we see in the church because we see a lot of men unwilling to step up because their wives are stepping up so much in the church. And the husbands feel like, well, therefore, spiritual work is women's work. And I'm, fortunately, we don't have that dynamic in this church, but I think it's something that you do see commonly in churches. Churches are run by the women, and the men are kind of in the background. They kind of show up, well, that's the woman's responsibility. So part of this is just our, how men are wired. Part of it is how our culture functions because we live in a culture that's particularly downgrading the, the role of men. Men are portrayed oftentimes, especially white men, are portrayed as being dumb and stupid and inept and, you know, the Archie Bunker type or whatever the characterizations are today. Uh, and so there's, there's, a, there's a fearfulness on the part of many men to step up. What if I step up in this arena and I fail? And I've had women say to me, I don't get it. My husband in the business world is a lion. He comes home and he's a lamb. What's that about? Well, he's confident of his position in his business or in his job, whatever career field he's in. He has confidence about that. But when he comes home, he feels like, well, I'm not the spiritual leader. I'm not, I can't step up to the call. And what, the way that you change that is the same way you do it with your kids. Uh, you, you help your kids to grow in confidence by letting them do it on their own, by letting them get it wrong. I mean, uh, you know, it's like, how do you get your kids to learn how to cut the grass? You let them cut it, which for me is hard because... It didn't look all that good. <laughs> I mean, we had kind of an Indian style of cutting mohawks all over the place, you know. But, it's, but you have to sit down and say, okay, what's most important here? What's, what's the thing that's critically important? And I think that you have to allow him, and especially if you say, well, you need to lead the family devotion or whatever it is. You can't be sitting back and correcting him. 
and constantly pointing out to him how he's not doing it right or doing it well enough. But you need to encourage him in what he's doing. Let him grow in that role and, and encourage him and give him confidence in it so that he feels like he can do this. Because the reality is God has anointed him to be the head of his family simply because God anoints the head of the family and he happens to be the head. So let him be the head. And for women, I know I get it, you know. I, my wife can tell you she gets it when she just has to kind of grit your teeth <laughs> as you watch them learn. But we have to learn. So uh, that's, you know, as simple as I can put it. And we could, if we had time and I would, was, was in your particular situation, we could begin to get down to specific examples. But I, hopefully you'll begin to think of some. But it's crazy as it sounds. You can get him to step up by kind of stepping back and encouraging him to take the lead, to build that into him. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully it'll happen. And don't call me to come over and talk to him. <laughs> uh, good, good. Um, so moving on to a little bit to a different topic. Again, I think this is... Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, and I think it depends on what age we're talking about. This is an open-ended question. I easily could have written this question. Um, how do you parent a child that does not want to be parented, one who will not follow rules, guidelines, or boundaries, one who basically wants to do what they want to do regardless of the consequences? Solomon put it very simply in Proverbs. He says, folly or rebelliousness is built into the heart of a child. So the problem is not something that happens to be just in your kid. You know, one of the things that's kind of, I remember people used to watch our kids and say, oh, your kids are so well behaved. And I thought, you haven't seen them at home. <laughs> you know, they're swinging off the light bulbs at home. But, you know, it's, so we get these kind of concepts sometimes that it's, it's always the grass is greener on the other side. And you know why the grass is greener on the other side? There's more manure on that side than there is on your side. So the, the simple reality is this is the essential problem. Everything we've been talking about on Sundays about training a child and the discipline, the correction and all that kind of stuff is, is all there because this is the dynamic. Now, here's the question, which isn't answered. What is the age of the child we're talking about? Because if you can uh, corral those, that rebellious spirit early in their life, uh, they'll be, it'll be less of an issue when they're older. I mean, this is kind of like, I know that's kind of a duh statement, but I mean, it's a simple reality that if you're talking about, you've just simply decided to start uh, uh, exercising parental control now that your kid is a teenager, um, you're going you're gonna to have a challenge in front of you. You're going to have some real fright because once they've gotten in their head that they can do whatever they want, and they don't have to submit to authority, um, they're going to have, unlearning that, well, you may not even be successful. And at that point, the question becomes really natural consequences. That even parents who have these terribly rebellious kids say, I just don't know how to control them. And I said to myself, really? Who is the parent here? <laughs> I mean, who pays for their food and their clothing and their shelter and who lets them use their car or even worse. I, I've talked to parents who said, I can't control my son. They buy the kid a car. They pay for his gas. They give him money to go out and do all stuff. Well, I can't control his behavior. I said, but you can control his cash flow. You can control his gas flow. I mean, you, you just simply say, I'm sorry, I'm not supporting this. Here, you know, I mean, this is not how it's going to work. And 
not losing sight of the fact that your home is your home that you're allowing them to live in. So, I mean, that may sound very harsh and unloving, but we are trying to prepare our kids for the world out there, not just simply within our own house. I want my kids to grow up. And I, I think it's like my oldest son, Ben, when he was, I, I think he was, gosh, he must have been like 23 or 24, something like that. You know, he'd, he'd uh, gone away to college and he'd come back and he moved back in with us. And then we hired him to work at the church. And um, as a, he was our junior high pastor after he finished Bible school. And, uh, uh, you know, my wife just one day said, you know, uh, I, think, I think he needs to move out. So I sat him down. I said, you know, really, I want you, we're paying you a salary. I want you to go out and get your own place and begin, you know, your own life. And he looked at me very honestly and sincerely says, why? <laughs> he says, I don't have to pay for food. I get free laundry. I don't have to pay rent. I, I don't want to pay for all those things. And I said, that's why <laughs> right there. It's not that we don't love you. You just need to go out and take responsibility for those things. And it was, you know, he kind of went through this identity thing. And as soon as he moved out, we changed his room so he couldn't move back in because, <laughs> because we knew that was in his plan back there someplace. But the whole point is we're trying to prepare them to launch into adult life and to be self-supporting, self-sufficient, responsible adults who can then take on the responsibility of a family and, and replicate the process to their children and their children at them. So it's, it's not just a matter of cruelly, it's helping them re realize that there are certain basic economic realities. Now today it's, it's pretty significant because something like 30% of kids between 18 and 34 uh, are still financially and physically dependent upon their parents for their support. I mean, they live at home with mom and dad. And part of that is the economy. It's a different way of thinking, though, because when I was that age, I'm not sure that we had more money, but I just found some, some dudes who were willing to share the cost of a place to live because the last thing I wanted to be is living with my parents. Have you ever tried to date while you're living with your parents? It just makes a, it doesn't send the right message to the girl. <laughs> it's not, it, but, well, I digress. But the whole point is that it's something that's quite doable and something that we need to encourage not because we're trying to get rid of them, but they just need to take that next step in life. So, you know, there's a lot of questions that, and a lot of variations in how you'd answer that based upon the age of the child. Uh, I wouldn't give that advice to somebody who's talking about an eight-year-old. But nonetheless, it really starts very early in our life of teaching our children that we are the parents and there are just certain expectations. And we let, uh, sometimes we just need to let the natural consequences be, uh, take over because there's certain things that simply saying, you know, if that's going to be your choice, then I'm not going to support this, whatever it is. And you can do that with little kids. I mean, they, they want their, their games or they want to participate in certain activities and go places and do things. And we simply say, no, it's not going to happen because you behaved in this way. So that, that I think that anytime you deal with punishment, it has to, it's, it's always a better learning experience when they can link the consequences together. Part of the reason why I believe that it's important to spank small children is because you can't reason with them. And I know there's a whole argument about that. In my book, I, I, I think I cover that thoroughly in the book and what is really the research on the idea of spanking small children. But the simple fact is that, and we're not talking about beating or any of that stuff, but essentially small kids can't reason out. 
You know, a, a two or three-year-old can't reason out consequences. And many times I see parents trying to reason with their kids, and I think, good luck with that one, you know. <laughs> the point, it's more important to realize that sometimes just a, a swat on the butt just really does get their attention and focuses them really, really clearly. And, uh, but as they get older and they can understand the relationship with the cause and effect, when they come to that point where they can say, this is the cause and this is the effect, then you start using not spanking as much as you use uh, uh, natural consequences to your actions. And you simply begin to create those grids. Well, if you want to do that, you know, Dad, can I go to camp? Well, yeah, uh, I, I'll provide you ways that you can earn the money to go to camp. I'm just going to give you the money for camp. I'm going to let you, we're going to do, set up some projects and things that you can help out around here. And some people say, well, then you're teaching your kids to, to love you for money. Whatever, I don't care as long as they behave. <laughs> because the reality is they're going to launch out into that world one day where they're going to have to make money in order to go to Cabo, you know, wherever it is they want to go on vacation. They're going to have to earn their own money. So they need to learn that that's how it works Regardless, and we'll let them, let them sort out their own identity crises on their own, pay for their own therapy. But when you're at this point in our life, they understand there's a cause and effect world that we live in. And they need to understand if you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You spend your money without thought, then you're broke. And that's the way it works. And we're dealing with, in some degree, a generation now that has never been taught that and don't understand that. And when you say to them, do you realize the federal budget is $20 trillion and uh, and growing, and there's a, there's a breaking point. Nobody knows where it is, but we think we're getting close to it when it can't be sustained anymore. And they just look at you and go, well, true story. I'm going to fly. In fact, I was coming back from Russia. I'm on a flight, and I have this guy sitting next to me. He's coming to Spokane to um, apply for a position with a firm here in town. And he's talking away and stuff and asking me about Spokane. I'm trying to fill him as best I can in my jet lag mind. And all of a sudden he pops out and he says, you know, I don't know why people are so concerned about this federal budget thing, this federal deficit thing. He says, we can just print more money. <laughs> Here's a man with six years of college, this graduate degree and all this stuff. <laughs> I didn't know where to start. Because I thought, if you are that ignorant of basic finances, the basic economy, uh, I don't have time to re-educate you. <laughs> but I mean, we have to understand that that's what's happening to kids. And we feel like we, we've kind of been convinced it's our obligation to make sure that they never want for anything. I, don't, I like my kids wanting for stuff because it, it motivates you to do what you need to do to get it because that, again, is how the economy works. Did that help at all, James? A little bit. Well, just yeah. tell, tell me about it. Uh, you know, I'm going to say, you know what you really enjoy? <laughs> Need to meet Grayson, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, no, it's interesting. I, I'm definitely listening to, to what you're saying because I think it, it, it does depend on the age of the kid. And I think uh, especially, I don't know if, if I'm in the generation you're talking about, but I'm close enough. Um, I'm just saying. We definitely, we don't want to see... Our, our kids go through hard things. And so a lot of times we, we do things for them or we don't. And I'm just even learning as far as like, I can tell him to do something, but sometimes the best way for him to learn is to be like, okay, you're gonna decide to jump off the couch or, or whatever yeah. it may be. I mean, I don't wanna, I'm thinking ahead of so many different things. I don't, you know, 
I don't like cleaning up another mess. I don't want to go to the emergency room. I don't want to do all this. I don't want to do all this. But like you said, we're, um, we're not trying to just accomplish the goal at home. It's, it's more about when he leaves home. And remind me of something I read um, before, too, about when it comes to, to training up kids, there's a cost to be paid. Mm-hmm. The younger the child is, the lower the cost is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you teach them about money when they're younger, you know, it's a pretty... It's a tantrum in a store or something like that. Yeah. You know, you wait till they're a teenager or whatever, and now it's a, an $18,000 brand new, you know, whatever it is that, yeah. that is on there um, or that you co- co-sign for, right? Um, but um, so, I, yeah, I think it's really, really interesting. I, I by no means have it figured out, and as soon as I feel like I've got a, a good step, he gets another year older, and I have to go all over and start over again. So, um, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's um, most mornings I, I get up and, uh, do stretches and I do sit-ups and I do push-ups because it's so much fun. <laughs> now, the reason I do it, and I hate it. I never, I don't know if I'll get to what I like it. I hate it, but there's one reason I do it, and it's because I know, remember what I looked like when I didn't. So, you know, it's, it's a price that you pay, and, and I think that that's, that's, we live in a world, you shall live by the sweat of your brow, God said to Adam, and we live in a world that that requires the sweat of our brow. And the earlier we can teach our kids that that's reality, uh, the better off they're going to be. Oh, definitely. Um, I think we got, yeah, we got, we got some more. Um, someone wrote in, as referenced in Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9, what pieces of scripture do you hang in your households for your children? Well, first of all, I'd say more important than what you hang in the wall is what, you, what hangs from your life. Um, it's the living out of the scriptures that becomes the most important thing. And that's why one of the things that I think can be uh, almost damaging is if we teach our kids scripture, but we don't live the scriptures that we teach them. Because what we've taught them there is that uh, hypocrisy is a, an acceptable form of living. And so it's, it's, uh, it's really important that more than what we put on the walls, it's more what we put in our hearts and, and allowed to express itself in a relationship. But, uh, you know, it's, I think that I reflect back on my own uh, childhood and I think about what had powerful impacts upon me, not in the home because my parents weren't really Christians, but in the schools. And in the schools, we had one particular passage of Scripture, Exodus 20. It was called the Ten Commandments. And I remember my mother teaching me the Ten Commandments as a little kid. My brother and I, before we go to bed, and every night she'd help us to work through and learn how to memorize and repeat the Ten Commandments. And that seems like, you know, as Christians, we're supposed to be, we don't want our kids to be legalists, uh, but we don't want them to be lawless either. And so what we give our kids in those Ten Commandments is the foundation of right and wrong. We begin to fight against the spirit of this age. In fact, this Sunday, my message is going to be addressing, you know, the kind of world that our kids are having to learn how to live in. And it's, a, it's basically a, not a uh, totally immoral world. It's maybe even worse. It's an amoral world. It's a world that has no sense of right and wrong. It's the postmodernist world where it's, everything is uh, as one, one writer put it, he says, we live in a self-referential uh, culture. And I thought, interesting way of putting it, because in other words, I am the reference from which everything is interpreted as good and bad and true and false, that it's the ultimate abuse of the existential mindset. So anyway, um, the bottom line is that your kids need to have a bottom line. 
in life, when you talk about the morals in their life, they need to have a bottom line, that there needs to be that, that thing implanted in their brain that there is only one God, that you'll have no other gods before Him, that you will not create anything on earth that you will bow down to and, and worship, that, you will, uh, that they are not to lie, to cheat, to steal, to commit adultery. Uh, they're to honor the Lord and to worship the Lord. All those things that are in the Ten Commandments are really foundational concepts for, the, for an ethic from which they can live their lives. It won't save them knowing that, but it may save them and you from a lot of heartache. Because here's the point. We live in an age where there are no reference points for kids. And so when you say to them, you shouldn't do that, the response we get back is, well, why not? What difference does it make? It's what I want to do. And all that matters is that I am happy. That's all that matters is I want to be happy. We come off the era where kids were taught that the most important thing, and parents were told the most important thing is that your kids have high self-esteem. What it turned into is we've taught kids that they should be praised when they haven't done anything worthy of praise. They should be honored when they haven't really done anything honorable. And so being awarded means nothing because if we have a, a baseball team and you're, instead of picking the most valuable player, we pick the most valued group of players and everybody gets a trophy, even the guy who never showed up half the time. And we, don't, we, we, we have this kind of twisted concept that we think we're helping kids. And then we look out in the world. I love what, what uh, Bill Gates said. That was He's speaking to a, a group of young uh, college students, people coming out of college. And he said to them, the problem with you guys is you think that because you've got finished college that you should automatically get a position uh, that pays $100,000 and a title of vice president with a corner office over with a great view. And he said, you haven't done anything to earn that. And it was amazing because this was shocking information. But you find a lot of people, I mean, craziest dynamics in our culture. We have, we have people who on average, young people who on average are going thirty-seven dollars to $40,000 on average in debt. They're coming out of college owing $37,000 on average for student loans. And going into a job market which, they, which they're not trained for because they've graduated with a degree in philosophy or literature or English. If they're not going into schools, which, you know, there's not a lot of choices there, they just don't have something that anybody's going to pay them for. And so what, there's, there's all these kind of disconnections that are going on in the world. And that's why I think that the first thing we need to teach our kids is the Ten Commandments. The second thing we need to teach them is the creation story. That God created the heavens and the earth. And the third thing that we need to teach them is John 3.16 and what that means. Because those are the, it's, it's the understanding that, I, that there are laws in the universe, number one, that were put in place by the God of the universe who created everything. Therefore, everything in the universe operates according to His rules, not mine. And what he did, and that awareness is what really brings forth the whole idea that I'm a sinner that needs redemption. Paul said the law bring, leads us to repentance. It's the thing that led, leads us to Christ. So when they begin to see you're not supposed to lie, you're not supposed to cheat, you're not supposed to steal, and all the rest of those things, uh, and particularly regarding your siblings, you're not supposed to commit murder, that when you understand those things, then you begin to be pricked in your conscience and you need to know that there's a Savior who will forgive you of your sins. So if you want to write those down and put them on the walls, I would say do it, live them, 
and reference them to your kids. But most importantly, I think bedtime is that perfect moment when every kid wants that intimate interaction with their parents. And instead of reading, reading them you know, wild things or whatever the books are that they're out there tonight, although I have a niece who just wrote a children's book, so you, know, you may want to read that one. But, but instead of going in that direction, what we need to do is really begin to teach them the biblical stories. Teach them the biblical principles uh, while they're still moldable and open to teach them the, the, the Ten Commandments, teach them the creation story, and, and teach them that uh, Jesus is the Savior and, and, and the gospel story. So, um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of different Bibles out there that are available uh, that are geared down to kids uh, so that they can easily follow along with them. But... Um, I would encourage you just to, to access some of those resources as well. I don't know if that, I hope I didn't dance around that too much, but. No, I don't think so. I think it's some, it's some uh, good, it's, it's not the rules, it's not the things on the wall that's actually going to make an impact. As mm-hmm. you said it on, on Sunday, I think is we can, we can tell our kids to pray or, or pray with them at night, but one of the biggest powerful impact, impactful things is uh, them seeing us pray together mm-hmm. and seeing how important it is and, and them knowing that we're praying for them and and actually living out what we're saying. Yeah, um, yeah. Speaking volumes. So. Yep. Amen. We out of time? I think so. I was just getting going. Yeah, if not, I got, we got one more. Okay. We got one, one more? more. I think it's, I think it's good. Um, these guys are, ki- these guys are good. Yeah, I mean, should we take a vote? I mean, what's that? No, don't vote. <laughs> it's a mail-in, it's I a actually, mail-in ballot. Just saying the word vote and I started getting trauma. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, moving on, just just talking about the topic of, of your kids being saved, I think this is a good way to close it out. Um, probably not an easy way. That's why I'm glad you're answering it and not me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been struggling with the belief, once saved, always saved. What does the Bible say about this? What do you think? For example, if a child is still, as you mentioned a couple of weeks ago, writing their testimony and dies, would they go to heaven even though they are actively living in sin and apart from the Lord? Let me break it down simply as quickly as I can. Uh, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, if eternal life isn't eternal, then what is it? And that's, I think, the whole, when you get down to it, because there's some people who believe that salvation is conditional or it's kind of slippery that you can fall in and out of your salvation. I, I personally don't think that's what Scripture teaches. I believe, as people sometimes say, once saved, always saved. I truly believe that. I think that's an easier position to defend biblically. Than, than the Arminian view that you know salvation is this thing that we can easily drop. The, the more important question in regards to that, though, is uh, John makes this statement in his first letter to church. He says, if, if you say you know God and yet you walk in darkness, you're a liar and the truth's not in it, in you. And it's interesting, the Greek tensing in there is really fascinating because it talks about, you know, in, in John 1.8, he said, 1 John 1.8, he says, if we uh, say we have no sin, we're a liar, and the truth is not in us. And it's in, in what we call the punctiliar, and, and what that means is that if you say that you never sin, then you're lying. We all sin, and we all sin with a fair amount of regularity. But when he says, when you, if you say you know God, and yet you walk in darkness, that word walk is in the durative, it means from the word, we get our word duration. In other words, when somebody says, I know God, and yet you never see any change in their life, then the serious question comes up, do they truly know God? And I think that's more the issue that just because uh, my wife and I operated from the premise that we would not 
uh, assume that our children were saved, regardless of how many times they said the sinner's prayer, regardless of the fact they went to camp and got baptized, and all this stuff, we would not assume that they were saved until we saw the fruits of the Spirit manifest themselves in their life. When we saw a desire for God, a hunger for God, and, and I think that's something that even as adults we need to be sensitive to because it's, it's, it's not that we're around to measure whether or not people are saved or not saved. I think in the ultimate sense, only God knows the answer to that question. But I can, as a friend of mine said, we're not called to pass that judgment, but we are called to be fruit inspectors. And, and we can look at stuff and say, this is inconsistent with what it means to be a child of God. If you're a child of God and you've done something that's inconsistent with being a child of God, you know what you feel? Guilt remorse and you want to repent and that's that repentance is the evidence that you are a child of God I mean I I really ask God to forgive me I ask you to forgive me I know it was wrong I I don't want to be that kind of person I want God to change me blah blah to me that's fruit of the spirit that first work John speaks of in John 16 the very first thing he said the Holy Spirit would do he'd come into the world and he'd convict the world of sin so the evidence, the clearest evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you is the fact that you get convicted for stuff. So you come in here tonight and I say some things about parenting and stuff like that and you're just going, oh, good, that's the way it works. <laughs> God pricks our hearts and, and we turn to God and say, Lord, what a wretched man I am, save me from my sin. Those are, that's not an indication of not being saved. I think it's an indication of being saved. But I think that's the first thing we need to determine. And uh, if, if you've never seen that person living, walking for God, they may know the Bible forward backwards. They may, uh, they may know, you know, be familiar with how the liturgy of any particular or their church works. So they know to have to sit down, stand up, shout, shout, shout. They know all the, 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 the key moments of how you do stuff, but they can still not know God. So ultimately, we relate to our kids as people who need to accept Christ. And I, if a little kid wants to accept Christ, I pray with them to accept Jesus because it can be the real thing for them. But sometimes I've seen kids who do it to conform and to please their parents, but they themselves don't really get it. I think reading Hudson Taylor's uh, testimony was, uh, his autobiography, our biography was really powerful because he talked about at 19 years of age, raised in this incredibly circumspect, upright, godly home, and he says, I was 19 years of age, and suddenly he says, I was overwhelmed with this great sense of darkness, that my soul was lost, that I did not know the Savior. I mean, he said, it was just like, it was a divine revelation, and it happened at the very moment his mom was praying with some other ladies that he would have a crisis of conversion, because he was a good boy, a good kid, never did any bad stuff. I mean, he was, on the outside, he was perfect, as a, as a parent could hope for, and yet he had not met the Savior. And so he said that was the moment when his life changed. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. And what happened is it changed his entire trajectory of his life, not morally, because he was always already moral, but in terms of the purpose, because he went from seeking a career in the financial industry to, and, and then from in the medical industry to seeking a career in, in the mission field. And completely changed his life because God was now guiding him. So I just think it's, it's just important that we understand if they are truly saved, uh, we're going to see that manifest itself. But if you don't see any evidence that they were ever saved, they may be Christianized, they may be enculturated into the church culture, but they still haven't had the crisis of conversion. And that's what we need to be praying for. Now, you're not, you're not a bad parent because of that. that you know, it's not like you failed your job because they, 
you don't save people. I don't save people. People get saved when they have a personal encounter with Jesus. You can't manufacture that. You can't force that. You can't discipline that. That has to happen on their own. And so how do you, what can you do in that regard? You can pray. You can model. You can encourage. But it does take some people a long time to figure that out. Why? I don't know. I, I complain to God about this all the time. <laughs> Really, honestly, I do. I complain to him a lot. I just, God, you frustrate me. Because I got, my wife and I have a whole list of people we pray for every day in our families that don't know Jesus. And, you know, for some of them, time's running out. So we're praying earnestly that they would have an encounter with Jesus. But I can't do it for them. Okay? I think it's a a great thing. I know that was after uh, growing up a little bit. Um, getting married, having kids, and I just, every day I realized more and more that I had so much opportunity to mess up my life really good when I was younger. <laughs> um, but just knowing, uh, just knowing that my parents were home and they were, they were praying for me. Yeah. And just there's so much power in that and how important it is. I think that's there's really a common theme through tonight of just praying for our kids, praying for the families in our church. So. Yeah. I bet they were really praying for you when you were living in my basement. You know... <laughs> If they knew I was there, <laughs> you didn't know I was there for a while. <laughs> I didn't. One day I asked Brian, is James living here? <laughs> uh, now, my parents, you know, let me give props to my parents. They would have been embarrassed if they knew that was the case. I didn't know that I was unknowingly in your, in your basement. I had permission from your, you know, son who was yeah. fully equipped to make the decisions for your house, right? <laughs> hey, well, you know, you both were 12. <laughs> no, you were young adults, so it was okay, but it was, it was funny. We always joke about it. <laughs> we go way back. Um, thank you. Let's pray and, and uh, bless your evening. Lord Jesus, um, I just thank you. This series, you know, when, 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 um, when we first came up with this idea to do this series, Lord, I wasn't sure... It was a a little bit of a venture of faith, Lord, to spend these many weeks on these topics. And yet, Lord, I I thank you for the the work that you're doing in people's lives. I I know that, God, that it's it's focusing our hearts in an area where we all are challenged and we all have uh, failures and and, uh, hurts and all of that kind of stuff, Lord. And we're all trying to figure it out and to understand your heart in these things. And I just thank you that you, we have your word to guide us. Um, I just thank you, Lord, that you, you speak to us, that your Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts. And as we pray to you, Lord, and as we see things, we just ask God for your grace and your help. I pray that you would just affirm that truth in our lives and you'd give us uh, even the question tonight. Spread, uh, there's such a spread of issues. And I know that behind each of these questions, at least most of them, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of suffering. Um, and I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would encourage and strengthen and build up and guide and direct. And give us your grace, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.